This episode of Above and Beyond is sponsored by Compassion International. To sponsor a child today, simply visit Compassion.com slash above. Cairo, Seattle. Episode 11 here in this season of Above and Beyond steps away in some aspects from many of its predecessors. Many of these that you've heard from over the last six months has been and have been friends, teammates, mentors, people that really built into my life. Uh, Very different with Ryan Leaf. Ryan Leaf was not a mentor of mine. He was my number one most competitive rival. The guy that I wanted to beat more than anybody else in my competitive life. And unlike many of these others that you've heard whose faith was in God, for nearly 40 years of his life, Ryan Leaf's faith was in himself until it all came crashing down. And his faith and his journey, yeah, they're different than mine. And there's still a whole lot more of his story to be written. I can't wait to watch it unfold. And I think you'll really enjoy the most raw, the most vulnerable, the most transparent podcast we've done yet. Let's go in the Wayback Machine. What was the family, I guess, dynamic first? And was there any faith in anybody in anything in your upbringing? Yeah, very much so. My family life was the product of your environment idea should have applied to me in the fact that I grew up in a very loving family, both parents around, two younger brothers, uh, very loving environment, um, nurturing, you know, diverse in the fact that my grandfather was a rancher, so we we got got to be out on the farm on weekends and then back in the city. Dad was just never pushy about anything. He just loved watching his boys be active. In fact, mom used to uh, love when it rained because her boys would stay in the house, you know, for a period of time and especially in the summer. So, yeah, I have two younger brothers, uh, Jeffrey, who uh, played a little basketball at San Diego State, and then Brady, who was uh, the quarterback at University of Oregon. We were active all the time um, and it wasn't sports specific. I mean, it was football season until football season was over and then you jumped into basketball and then when basketball's over, you jumped into baseball and basketball was always my favorite. Faith in our family was, faith was more wrapped around religion for us. So it was, it was kind of forced upon us. We had to go to church on Sundays, got to go to CCD classes on Wednesday nights. So it was a bit forced on you and you didn't necessarily view it in the way that I view spirituality now. And, uh, you know, I was an altar boy, did all those things. But it seemed that when I left to go to college, that faith base kind of disappeared except for pregame stuff. I guess the only time I really got on my knees to ask for, for any help was right before a game to help me <laughs> help me win that game, I suppose, or perform well. How competitive was the home growing up? The home wasn't so competitive. It was my brothers were far enough behind me. They just never could quite get to the uh, uh, level that I was. It, for me, it was competing at school and in my town and around uh, the smaller towns with their best athletes. And that's where uh, my competitive drive came out. I had to win at everything. And if I didn't, I wanted to run that back immediately so I could make up for it. Who was the Ryan Leaf in those days? Ryan Leaf, as you mentioned there, the, the faith component, the religious component. Is any of that in your competitiveness and your sports 
is in the Ryan Leaf through junior high and high school as a competitor? Yeah, I think it really started to develop around 12 or 13 when I, I kind of realized that being good at athletics placed me on a bit of a pedestal. And I could kind of see that. And my parents found out that a lot of eyes were on me, especially in a small town. Um, I use this analogy a lot. There's only been one Montanan ever drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. And it's me. There's more first-round draft picks in the Manning family than in the whole state of Montana. (laughs) So it was groundbreaking in a way of what that looked like. And my parents wanted to kind of shine a positive light on everything. And even though a bad attitude may have started to do evolve because of being placed on that pedestal so early, instead of actually having to take any accountability for any behaviors, I think it kind of, uh, as we see a lot with uh, athletic young men and women who are given a lot of that early on. And for me, in a small town like that, it was they wanted everybody to see everything was okay rather than, than it wasn't. Ryan, I shared some of my story when I was in high school that I could not handle failure. And that that wasn't a great attribute. I I could not handle it and flipped out at certain times. Ryan Leaf is a competitor in high school. If we would have watched you then, what would we have seen on that tape? You would have seen very competitive when something good would happen, you know, hands in the air, all about me. Um, When something bad would happen, maybe almost trying to will my teammates to not let that happen again. You know, how are you not able to do this? you know, type of thing. Because it came easy to me. And I was like, how are you not able to do this? I figured that out when I was coaching too. I don't know if I could ever have coached like junior high or high school because, you know, I I tell you something and and you're not able to do it. It it would confound me. Sometimes there would be huge anger issues when when I'd look at somebody and they they weren't as intense about it as I was. Uh, That they were just a young man enjoying playing athletics in high school, you know, and not the understanding of like, no, we have to win a championship. Don't you understand? So as I think most people who achieve what you and I have been able to achieve, there was that competitive nature that started and fueled you to get where you were at. I would have never been able to get out of the state of the Montana if it weren't for that, that fire that, that, that was built up inside of me for sure. How about the recruiting process? That was neat. You know, I got, I got recruited by everybody. UW even recruited me. If you only could have got in. Only. Yeah, that, sorry, I'm, I didn't mean that. That's messed up. <laughs> That's so messed up. Ah, good thing Washington State was available. <laughs> so you were recruited by everybody, though. You're a big deal. Yeah. A, a really big deal. A big guy, massive presence, incredible success and in all of that. Everybody came calling. What did that do to Ryan Leaf? What did that do to the family? What did that do to the any faith dynamics, either in yourself or in others around you? I think that was a good time in our lives. I think that was like justification for all the hard work uh, that we had gone through. And I think mom and dad envisioned if we just got out of the small little town, there would be, there would be changes. It built the ego, of course, to have all these division one coaches showing up to try to convince you to come play for them. You know, I got to go to the university of Miami, which was culture shock for a kid from Montana. I felt the most comfortable on my trip to Washington State. Aaron Price, uh, Mike Price's son, was the kicker at the time, hosted me uh, with Chad DeGrenier, who was a very faith-based. Well, the word out of from my coaches or something to Coach Price was like, Ryan's a really straight arrow. Well, there was truth to that. I, hadn't, I didn't drink once in high school. So we're going to put more of the straight arrow host with him. And, not, and then we got to like the last night, and I asked 
Chad, I was like, so are you going to like show me what college is like? You're going to show me what this is about? And he's like, well, coaches told me you were just like straight arrow, religious, not, not to take you anywhere, do anything. I said, well, I got to see where I'm going to be for the next four years. You know, so he took me to Aaron Price was throwing a little get together. And that's, that's how I first was initiated to kind of Washington state. And, and Mike Price was the, was the end all be all of why I went there. You know, he called me on New Year's Day and said, this was really faith-based because this had me taking a lot of faith. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm watching the Rose Bowl. It was UCLA and Wisconsin. And he said, I'll make you a deal. You come here, we'll play in that game together. And I, I just bought it, hook, wow. line, and sinker. I didn't do any research and realize they hadn't been there since 1931 or that the facilities – really didn't compare to I mean I canceled the trip to Oregon I remember we traveled there for a game to play at Autzen and saw the facilities I said God, I'm lucky I didn't come on a visit here <laughs> you know yeah but he did he sold it he was like a second father to me my parents really trusted him with me we had a relationship where that behavior that it was exhibited in high school that fire he sent it right back at me because he wanted to win just as much as anybody and we could have very good confrontations that were respect-based and I had faith in him that he was going to teach me how to be a, a good quarterback. You know, it's interesting. We're going to intersect here now a little bit. Coincidentally, I had called when I made my decision. I had called Jim Lambright and Dick Baird, the Husky coaches, on January 1st. And I called those guys and I said that to them. I said, you know what? I envision myself in a Rose Bowl and I want to do it in purple. You ultimately in 97 end up in that Rose Bowl. We just never quite get there. So now take me on to campus. Take me to the straight and narrow who's been to now Miami, who now has been introduced a little bit to what college is about. And now take me to Ryan Leaf steps on campus in Pullman. There was a culture shock immediately. Mom and dad brought me there for camp. We go through the first day, you know, we're in the we're in the training facility and then the uh, the dinner reception hall and one of the offensive linemen asked me to stand up on the table and hold the tray and sing the fight song and and I, I had prepared, and so I had started doing it. And then, but one of them, one of the elder offensive linemen, decides to pants me too, right there, in front of the volleyball teams there too. And I remember fighting through the rest of the song, red faced, dropping my tray down, pulling my pants back up. And as mom and dad are preparing to leave the parking lot the next morning, I mom tells me the story that time. I looked at her and I said, "I think I've made a terrible mistake." Because then you revert to the 18-year-old kid yeah. with the maturity level of, I think, when you get placed on that pedestal at 13 is when that you know emotionality may be arrested for a young man. You know, your, t- your talent level of athletics moves along, but sometimes that emotional behavior gets stunted. And so I was just that young kid again wanting mom and dad to tell me everything was going to be okay. And, yeah. and the stoic man my father is, who really didn't ever said much other than... He was proud of me, uh, simply said that. You made the right decision. This is going to be okay. You redshirted? I did. I ended up taking an unofficial visit to Wazoo that year where you were redshirting. And I remember thinking, man, Mike Price is my dad. So my dad was my coach, and he was everything that Mike Price was. You would have loved my dad. Everybody loves my dad and loved everything and and really loved that trip, but ultimately knew that that was going to be your turf. And I would have an opportunity to stay home and, and be in the community that I'm still in. So you redshirt, and then it is Ryan Leaf time. It wasn't quite yet. I assumed, because I played, I felt like I played better and prepared better as a redshirt. But I, again, thought that I was entitled to this. Chad simply, he didn't play well, but I didn't 
jump out there with the work ethic because things came easy to me to actually take it, even though the defense was clamoring for it because we couldn't score points. And finally, he did something behaviorally with a, a coach on the sideline during the Cal game, and Coach Price said, all right, kid, here's your shot as a redshirt freshman. And I went in, and, I mean, the adrenaline that was pouring through me just, I mean, the first pass I threw, the ball went through Jay Dumas's hands. I mean, just obliterated his hands at a 14-yard dig route. I mean, there was there was <laughs> there wasn't a speed control on it for me. Yes. And coach brought me over after the play, you know, after the series was over, and he's just like, he's like, okay, you, okay, calm down, calm down. This is it's going to be a lot of these. <laughs> and then uh, the next week, they started Sean Deeds uh, for senior night against Stanford. He only they let him play for a series, and then I I went. What happened from that point on was life-changing for me. So now who is Ryan Leaf becoming on campus at this point? A caricature. I didn't spend much time on campus other than to go to class, and then I was in the film room and uh, you know doing football stuff. But it, that last year when all of a sudden we're 6-0 and and 7-0 and and little old Pullman gets into the national spotlight, it was weird. It was like that pedestal that I once was on when I was younger now was placed on an even higher one, and the student-athlete part kind of falls to the side, and people are wanting pictures, autographs, or to say hi while walking on, on campus. And that first was odd and then sensationalizing. For me, ego was always an issue. So feel the idea that I found out later that because I played a, a game of football, that made me better than you. Yeah. You know, I wasn't taught that by my family. This was something that I self-learned because of how it made me feel. Self-esteem issues are there, and when you're kind of this person, it's like you're an egomaniac with a self-esteem problem. An egomaniac with a self-esteem problem. Any mentors, Ryan? Coach Price did, and Mike Levenseller, I think. I think those two coaches were the best for me. Early on, I tried to reach out to Drew Bledsoe. Um, it just was so competitive for me, too, because they were calling me Baby Drew when I got on campus, and then I was having to live up to this. So I, I may have not reached out to him like I probably should have. And also, I think that he didn't need a kid coming in breaking his records right off the bat either. You know, he put himself as a legend there. Yeah. Coach Price did develop that. And while I was in college, I just, you know, my teammates really picked me up. I got a lot of the credit, of course as coaches and quarterbacks do, but that team, to do what we did in Pullman, that was the, the consummate definition of what a team looked like. I mean, we had walk-ons, we had Prop 48s, Waste Coach had you know, kind of duct taped this, this thing together, JC transfers, to make it, make it work that year. And I don't think if we beat you guys in an overtime in Pullman and go 6-5 and five and get to a bowl game, I do not think that we are able to do what we do that that last year there for me. I think that pushed us. The fact that we didn't go to a bowl game, that we didn't achieve what we needed to do, achieve pushed us harder in the offseason and, and, and got us going. How big was the ego? It was healthy. I think that's a good word. It was healthy. Um, but, I mean, everybody's telling me how great I was. Yep. And uh, I wasn't going to tell them they were wrong. Criticism was always difficult for me. I never got criticized necessarily as a player, but – I was always criticized on how I behaved, but usually the the play would outweigh that and you could get by. 
And I, you know, the questions were like, what do you think when people say he's a jerk? And I said, well, who cares? He sure can play. You know, that was the epitome of the definition of what I told you of like, I'm a great football player and that's all that matters. And that's never going to go away because, you know, I'm going to go play professionally. I'm going to win Super Bowls and I'm going to ride off into the sunset and go to the Hall of Fame. What mom and dad think? 96, 97. Dad, you know, dad always said, it's fine. Mom was always like, this is just, everybody's going to see. Everybody's going to find out. She was, she was always worried about, you know, because you can hide in Pullman. See or find out what? She knew her son. She knew how if adversity struck, it would be difficult for me to, because things had already always come easy. And it, it continued to do so. And she wanted me to stay for my senior year and play. So mom's intuition knew that you handling failure and handling adversity would be a real challenge. Yeah. Mom's intuition is, oh man, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be adversity that's going to come and my son's not equipped. Yeah. And she needed, she needed somebody to help her with that. She tried growing up sports psychologists, the way she put it is I would just manipulate them or they'd come back and say, don't worry, don't worry, Marsha or Mrs. Leaf. He'll get what's coming to him and then, you know, he'll have a humbling experience and it just so happened that, that that humbling experience didn't happen until the brightest of lights. Did you know that in your heart of hearts? No. I mean, way deep, deep, deep down. Pro, you know, I, I thought that I was a flawed human being, but this veneer was really thick. I had built it up so much that it didn't matter what people threw in front of me. I was going to battle and win. I also had great teammates and, and support staff um, who had my back. I mean... The state of Washington, Coug fans, they rallied around me in a way that the state of Montana never did, that I was their quarterback. And they were proud of that, and they'd stick up for me, you know? They kind of liked the brashness and little swagger that I had because it was putting Washington State on the map and giving them an opportunity to brag about themselves a little bit, I think. And we were all in it together. So they had my back, and the accountability that I had to, to face didn't necessarily show itself. And I didn't really see a huge change in my behavior until I'm watching some of the interviews right after probably the Heisman Trophy ceremony leading into the Rose Bowl. I remember they asked me a question about your guys' game against Michigan State in the Aloha Bowl. Mm -hmm. Asked me, Ryan, are you going to watch it? And it was just the condescension of an answer that came like, why would I watch those losers? (laughs) Now, there's a a point where there's the, the playful banter about, you know, your rival and stuff like that was like really condescending and like, I'm so much better than this question that you just asked me. And I've witnessed the, that transformation a little bit. And that, I think, was the you know, the real kind of turning point of, of, of where I was going. But a lot of those things thickened your veneer. The cheerleaders running out of the tunnel at Husky Stadium with the Canadian flag. And me asking my coach, like, what is that? Why are they ki- Oh, you got to be kidding me. That's a leaf. That's a maple leaf. So the, the Coug fans with the maple leafs and all of that and all the attention and all the hype, would you say it just thickened the veneer? Thickened that in veneer of like of the idea that I was perfect. And then you had to put on the front that that was true too. You couldn't let it show anybody any vulnerability or weakness, especially as a leader of a football team too. When you're lying on your bed and you're kind of looking up at the ceiling, even like in the quiet moments, in the quietest of moments, that's when you can kind of self-identify a little bit. There was no fear. There was no, there was no insecurity. I always had the, uh, 
the fear of judgment of others outside of the, the arena. You know, the arena is where I was, was the strongest and I was considered the best. Where I struggled greatly was sociably, you know, how to effectively go from that person to a human being in social situations. So those nights spent alone in my dorm room because a lot of times alone because I didn't have the kind of friends that I do now um, because I was abrasive or pushed people away because of that stuff. Those were the feelings I had. That was the fear I had of like, you know, why can't I have a go-to friend to, you know, I end up going to the office and telling Coach Price this stuff. And, you know, my best friend in college was Coach Price probably. We spent more time than, with anybody. We, I fell asleep on his couch countless times watching film, you know, and it's just, you know, you had a, a deep focused intensity towards the goal and being a good person really wasn't a top priority for me. You know, I'll get to that later or maybe I'll win that later. I mean, you were me in seventh grade, man. Yeah. That's who I was. Like, I'm just going to destroy. I'll yell at you a kickball. Like you're, you, you suck. You're terrible. You know, pick it up. But thankfully for me, I guess I had, you know, Scott Sears, I've mentioned in my podcast in junior high, looked at me like you're headed for real trouble. And he really poured into my life then. And an accountability group through high school is like, no, 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 no. Um, that was me in seventh grade. You sound like me in seventh grade. Well, I think I talked to you about it. Seventh grade was probably 12 or 13 for me, right? And that's when I think that arrested development happened. And I was that age for a long time. I might maybe like 30 behaviorally. The fact that you had a guy in high school to be able to pull you down, there was just never a maybe a mentor or somebody who could humble me because I was always better than everybody. And the talent pool in Puyallup, especially with your brother too ahead of you there, yes. there may have been able to kind of knock you down a peg. And I'd play with the guys when I was a freshman and their seniors and I'd be, you know, winning. You know, my mom made this point to me recently about, she's like, you know, there just wasn't the kick the little kid's butt down the hall. That's thing. right. And uh, until there was, until I ran smack dab into junior sale. So you run by me. Uh, on that field in 1997, November day in 1997. And in my head is, I want to beat this guy more than any human, maybe outside of my older brother, Damon, who I rarely beat, but I want to beat this guy so badly. That's what's going through my mind. You run by me. I can sit so weird, Ryan. I can so clearly picture that gray day. I can picture what you were wearing. I know I can picture what I was wearing, my eye black, my face mask. I'm going to beat this guy. I'd worked out with a few of your teammates that summer, Sean McWashington and Tim's and those guys, and it was a heated rival, and I want to beat you so bad. You run by me. Did you even think about me at that point, or is it about what, – what, what went through your mind in that moment? You know, I was pretty much focused on the defense. I mean, I always kept track of, of you. You were, you, know, you were the guy I chased at the top of the statistics um, – my whole sophomore year, and then again the next year. It was always we. It was we were a luxury. It was kind of like this year, you know, with UW and WSU at the top of the statistics uh, sheets, and uh, we were always kind of back and forth. So I was always I always kept track of what you were doing, but I knew that you were certainly the least of my worries that day. I mean, mm-hmm. it was Parrish, it was freaking Jensen, Chorak, um, mm-hmm. Lester Towns. That was. That was my my big worry that day. Michael Black was my savior that year when things would start to, to sputter a little bit. We just give him the rock. He ran one in, and and that that seemed to kickstart us. And then all of a sudden, I went into a space where uh, I was unconscious for a minute. Yes, you know, I was yep. you know, all of a sudden nine nine in a row, and then thrown to the wrong place and <laughs> wide open guy. You know, so it was 
It was yeah. the, it was the way it went that day. It was the first Rose Bowl in sixty seven years. You mentioned nineteen thirty one or whatever, and it was the first Rose Bowl in sixty seven years. And Ryan Leaf is now on a pedestal. You can talk about the pedestals earlier and in Great Falls and everything else, but now Ryan Leaf is on a pedestal. That I mean, what Coog sixty seven years been? You've led them back to the Rose Bowl, and emotionally and behaviorally, you were. It was a pretty good space right then. I felt like I was a part of something for the first time in my life. I was actually part of a group, a community, and we were experiencing this together. And what would go on from that Apple Cup until the final whistle of the Rose Bowl was a mutual admiration society. There were times where I'd see some videos crop up, uh, interviews and things like that, but for the most part, I could see the, a change, but for that time, it was the best six weeks of my life. I got to not only go to a Rose Bowl, but do it in Husky Stadium against University of Washington. Mm-hmm. And then I got to go represent my university in New York as the Heisman Trophy finalist. That, till this day, is whatever football has represented or given me, that is my favorite thing to talk about because I got to represent Washington State. I knew I wasn't going to win. I got to bring my father with me to see all these old past winners, his his heroes he grew up watching. The visual of him that night doing all the things he got to do by far outweighs, you know, anything that I that I've ever got to do and it's still my my proudest moment as a football player. And then the Rose Bowl ends and then the journey to the draft begins. That's branding, you know. This year was the first time I really looked at it again because I was more involved with the NFL for the first time. What goes on from when that season ends until the draft? The branding that goes on, that marketing your player. Patrick Mahomes was not a top 10 pick when the season ended. It just, in no one's eyes, and just it showed how good Lee Steinberg is yep. and what he's capable of doing. Not taking anything away from Patrick, but there has never been an air raid quarterback to be successful in this league yet. I mean, it's a, it's amazing to watch it happen, and that's what happened. It just became a marketing show between Peyton and I and it was good cop versus bad cop, and I never stopped and told anybody, hey, I'm really scared that you guys keep calling me the bad cop because it, it makes me sad, and I don't like it. Instead, I just I kind of took it on and said, yeah, I can roll with that. I can be your Dennis Rodman if you want, and I'll just kick your butt. Veneer starting to crack a little, though? No, still not crack, and now it's, now it's, <laughs> now it's probably Teflon, you know? It doesn't matter what you say to me or anything. I'll just be like, dude, I got the three ideals now. I got the money, I got the power, and I got the prestige. And that's what makes you successful in this life. Just look around, kid. And I just thought it was never going to end. Ryan, you said you were, you'd listen to Coach Dungy's podcast that we had a chance to do. And Dungy, and I'm sure in your days in Tampa, did it uh, the way he did in Indianapolis and everywhere, of perception and reality. I'm getting the sense as we're spending a lot of time together here that that perception of who Ryan Leaf was, there was a lot of reality through college. You know, that, that cocksure, that confident, that the bravado. But I'm getting the sense that perception in reality, as you even said there in kind of the lead up of good cop, bad cop, this part of me is like, that wanted to say that perception is wrong. Here's the reality. First of all, is that a fair way to characterize all of that? Very fair. I think it goes back to childhood too when mom and dad would try to kind of cover it's just too much work to try to show people who I really am so I'm just going to let them let them go with this because it's fine because I'm 
I have everything I need to be successful. You know, they can think whatever they want. ESPN the magazine have been out. This is the second issue I think ever. Uh, and Peyton and I are on the cover, and it's like the uh, John Travolta, Nick Cage face-off kind of photo. The article pretty much just talks about how I'm lazy and um, kind of the bad boy where he's got the lineage and everything like that. But at the end, still at the end, he says, but we're still going with the rifle arm leaf. It kind of just proved the point of like, I could be just considered just the worst to everybody, yet they're still going to pick me. You know, mm. and that enabled my behavior even more because it was just like, do your worst, Ryan. We still love you. In rookie year, we win. We win my first two starts. Yep. First time since Elway in '83 that a rookie did it. Top of the world, and then we ran into the buzzsaw of Kansas City, and it was it was just a bad game. It was the worst game I ever played, but it was just a bad game. And I, the amount of scrutiny that came when I lose or play poorly in Pullman, I mean there was. It was minuscule, and also there really wasn't really poorly played. I mean, I still played pretty well. Sure. But at that level, at that scrutiny, and how poorly I played, um, I was embarrassed and humiliated, and I felt backed into a corner. And my behavior after that game and the preceding week leading into the Giants game solidified my career as being over. And it took a week for something I've wanted to do since I was four years old. That's how messed up and like, uh, you know, I'm standing on a on a deck of cards mm. that's been er- erected, right? With just no foundation. Built on sand. No yep. spiritual, yep. you know, faith-based. There was that joke in college that Sports Illustrated put out right after we had won the Apple Cup that said, what's the difference between God and Ryan Leaf? The punchline is, is that God doesn't think he's Ryan Leaf. Hmm. And I thought it was hilarious back then. That I was like, yeah, that's right. You know, because I probably did think I was a God. There was a spirituality void in my life. Hmm. You know, it was based all around me and what I could do when I had to rely on myself. I didn't rely on my family. I didn't rely on anybody. And if people tried to tell me no, or especially when things happened that week to try to, how to fix this, how to make it better, you know, I, I pushed them away. And there was a little worship of you. Yeah. Made a little bit of a hero worship through all of those years, and that adversity comes, and now... Yeah, I didn't have the tools mm. to deal with it in a healthy way. I watched the Tim Tebow post-game after the Mississippi game, where they lost by miss- an extra point being missed. It has nothing to do with him. He played, but he stood up in front of that. I mean, it's it's history. They have it outside... On a plaque. On a plaque. Correct. And he pretty much just says, it's on me. This is never going to happen again. I'm going to work my tail off so it never does. I'll be the hardest working guy you've seen. If you match those up against my post-game comments, pretty much probably would have been like, poor me. I was sick in the hospital all week. My teammates didn't pick me up. I mean, completely different. That's That was a foundation that had been laid years before in understanding that there had to be this huge process of being a good person before you ever became a great football player. And I was weighed and measured that day and laid bare for the world. It was a very humbling thing, but I didn't take it as a humbling experience. I took it as an attack, and I proceeded to fight and fight and fight and fight. You know, a lot of these podcasts, Ryan, and and the faith and sports component, and I like to use the analogy that Christ surrounded himself with 12 guys. The ultimate 
team. Right. That wasn't about just one, and he didn't just come and do his thing. That he needed a group of men and, at that time, and needed a group of people, and he needed uh, they needed one another. And I talk a lot, a lot of the folks, because a lot of my story, my life, is the accountability that I've had around me. And I'm just curious at that time and at that moment, did you have anybody that could come to you, any mentor, any accountability, any Christian, anybody that just said, hey, man? I did. It was me. I was the problem. I didn't see it. I didn't hear it. Junior Seau, Rodney Harrison, John Carney. John Carney even brought to me an opportunity to spend a weekend with Tony Robbins on his private island in Fiji. And I think, you know, the exact words out of my mouth were like, F Tony Robbins. I got this. Don't you know who I am? It took those teammates for granted, and they don't have the patience. They're trying to win. They're trying to feed their families. And if they worked really hard that whole rookie year to try to, to make me a part of what they saw in me. And when I wouldn't come aboard, they said, hey, no one's going to cry for you. You know, no one's going to cry for you. And I just, I didn't do it. I finally figured it out in Tampa, surrounded by Coach Dungy, Brad Johnson, Mike Allstott, all those guys, that defense, those defensive guys just kind of put me under their wing. And if I just simply wasn't talented enough anymore after my wrist injury and, and uh, to do what I needed to do to be successful. But I, I finally found that unit, and then I just kind of you know, left it by the wayside. So is that veneer cracked in San Diego? Yeah. As just, it did, and as you laid in your bed now, I'm imagining in those quiet moments looking at the ceiling, it was a little different. Then it was, there was a ton of shame and victim stance, too. People don't understand what a raw deal I got. Victim stance. I don't think I've ever heard that. It's a good word. You learn a lot of different definitions for words when you're in recovery. People use a lot of, there's, some are cliche, but some are very impactful on how you define your life. Victim stance was a very, very good one for me that I, I play the victim a ton. I wouldn't look in the mirror and go, you're here because of what you did, nobody else. That just, that wasn't something that would happen until much later in life when I really, when truly was humbled. So you go through San Diego. It was Tampa the next stop? And it was amazing because I got waived. You guys usually clear waivers and wait for them to get them for nothing. Tampa Bay put a waiver bid in for me and I thought that was, that was like drafting me again. Somebody yeah. drafted me. So I went down there and just bought in. But the same old Ryan, you know, showed up. I was the problem, you know. Season came and they asked if I'd take a pay cut because they took on the San Diego Charger salary. And uh, I just simply said no. I was going to be able to sit and learn for a year. And I, I said no. Um, I want to play. You know, so they're tough. All right, kid. So they cut me, and Dallas Dallas swooped in, and they weren't nearly as interested in bringing me along, but rather playing me immediately. And I mean, I could have probably been a backup in this league for years and years and years. Talent was talented enough to probably do that. The pride is what got in the way of all that. The pride of, I'm the starting quarterback. If I'm not the starting quarterback, then I'm not anything. So I might as well not even be around. How do you now characterize those years? Worst five years of my athletic life. Yeah, by far. There wasn't an enjoyable moment. Maybe the draft day. You know, I, I would say it was the worst four years, five years of my life. We, we saved that 
wonderful journey for later. But So worst five years athletically. I projected that everything was okay, right? So mm. I use this analogy a lot. Like if social media would have existed then, it would have looked very similar to what uh, Johnny Manziel's year out of football looked last year. I was making $5 million a year, so I had to continue to pretend to everybody that that's the kind of person I was. You know, we'd go to Vegas, we'd go private planes. We, I mean, it was just... It was so the cliche of washed up egomaniac with a self-esteem problem trying to make everybody believe that everything's okay. Who knew it wasn't? Well, I think that's the thing about an addict, too, is that you think you're fooling everybody, but everybody really sees what's going on. And I surrounded myself with a, t- a bunch of yes men, mm. uh, guys that actually like called themselves my cousins that were some relative that, you know, I was the golden goose. They got to go on all these amazing... Mm. adventures and you know i was just a mess um, gambling too much you know drinking and then we're in vegas for a fight and you know how they announced the celebrities in the audience before and every time they announced the guy's name people just the whole place cheers and they announced my name and it just was a rain of booze and i've been booed before of course but i had my shield on of a football uniform and a helmet, that uh, hurt me a lot. We went to a party afterwards, and a boxing promoter that I knew offered me some drugs, uh, Vicodin. I mean, it's the only drug I'd ever taken because of my surgeries, and I, for the first time in my life, I took it that night, abusing it with alcohol. I'd walk into a bunch of rooms that, that night and not feel judged in those rooms, not feel the booze, and it became a way of life for me from that moment on of not feeling that. I essentially rebuilt that veneer in opiate painkiller that protected me and numbed me. That was my new girlfriend, wife, best friend. It cared for me like nobody else ever had in my eyes. And that would go from 28 to 35 probably um, with stints of sobriety, but just creating chaos on a daily basis. back at it was that night those booze that just personal hurt it pushed me over the precipice i was i was there i was clinically depressed you know when i when i walked away from football i felt like a failure but then i was told by everybody critically that i was this monumental failure or mm. when draft time comes around the biggest bust and i have always cared what other people think of me that's the egomaniac with the self-esteem problem issue to a to a T. I didn't want to feel any of that anymore. I didn't understand or truly realize that 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 was a conscious choice too, to be able to think that what other people think of you is none of your business. But at the time, my answer to that was to numb it away or medicate it in a way where I didn't feel any of it. Yep. God's size hole and yours is filled with Vicodin and booze. Right. And that's from 28 to 35-ish? Yeah. Seven years. And you've gone on into coaching through that point? Went back to college. I went... That was another thing, too. I went back to Pullman to finish my degree uh, after a failed marriage, after just a failure at all of it. I went back to a place where I was a hero, and I just hid. I lived in Moscow. I would just go over for classes. So the classes were over. I'd be back at my place, a huge place in Moscow that I didn't need to rent, but I wanted everybody to think that everything was okay, you know, or look good. Just the perception of everything always had to look good. 
and I'd take pills. You know, it was just a lonely, isolated thing. I'd order them online. Any opportunity I could uh, to see an urgent care doctor, I would. It was easy to say, don't you know who I am? I got beat up for a living. You know, look at these x-rays. I'm in pain. Uh, so it really wasn't a lie. I was in terrible pain. I was hurting. Uh, it was just for emotional healing. And I did that. And I did something that I was really proud of. I got my degree, you know. I did something I told my mom I'd do. I, I got my degree and then ventured out with the idea of coaching. I was like, you know, you no longer can do, so now you teach. I was so wrapped up in that identity that I'm Ryan Leaf football. The two went hand in hand. I couldn't disassociate uh, one from the other, and that was a huge problem. I, I'm really proud of some of the work I did with those young men, but it just it just took me deeper and deeper into a hole that I hadn't confronted. Is that West Texas A&M? Yes, sir. Three years, two and three quarters. And my quarterbacks were great young men. Hmm. They actually got me involved with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes because they were heads of them. But it was like I was a hypocrite in that. You know, I'd, I'd really champion them doing that. And then I would go home at night and, and take my pills and ask my, te- ask my kids that I was coaching for them, ultimately taking them from them. I mean, so, you know, I was always a hypocrite when it came to the idea of, you know, do what I say, not what I do. And being in coaching, I was surrounded by football again, you know, and the, the rash comments, people were like, why would you listen to this guy who was such a failure? But the young men were like, we want to get to where he just sniffed the idea of where he got to. And we listened to him and he really cared for us. I mean, I, I've heard a lot of them talk about it, but I, I felt upset that they had to talk about me, A. B, that it was in a negative way for them to like stand up and care for me. And... I just continued to, to numb the feelings of loneliness, failure, fear, judgment. I mean, all those things that come with depression because asking for help was a sign of weakness. And I always looked at it that way. I never saw the TV movie or, or film of the star quarterback or valedictorian standing in front of the group of his peers going, hey, everybody, I, I'm, I'm really struggling. I need some help here. It's not something you see. So there's a stigma behind mental health and asking for help. And then bottom there is? Bottom there is, of course, uh, uh, being indicted. Well, first of all, having to resign because I took a player's pills. And he did. he's a 19-year-old kid, and he told his mom. and His mom reported it, and like, she, like he and she are supposed to. Uh, it was the first time I ever actually ventured to get any help. But, you know, your actions have consequences, and ultimately they came back around to roost. And, and uh, I was indicted on, on drug charges in the state of Texas. And those headlines? Well, yeah, they're you know now 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 the failed football player is you know a failed whatever the punchline is. Could you numb those? Was there any escape at that point, or what? Yeah, I, well, probably taking my life. I think that was that was where where I wanted to go. I remember just after it broke on the news, I'd taken like a bottle of vodka and sitting in a movie theater all by myself in Amarillo, Texas, just drinking it to numb that stuff and crying and having my dad text me on my phone because he's so worried about his son on what's not because all these bad things are because he's worried about his son. He wants his son around. And, uh, so that, that's where I was at. Um, and I got introduced to, to recovery and treatment because of it. That's how you fix the issue of wanting to numb stuff. So but it is. You, you are so fearful and scared that when those numbing agents are taken away and you actually are starting to feel these things, it, it is, it's 
an anxiety ridden freak out because you're so used to not feeling any of this stuff. So you immediately need to find a way to do that. And, and for most people, it's irrational and illogical, but it is either I need to be high or I need to be dead. It is. I mean, your brain chemistry is so messed up because of these chemicals. And uh, I had to, for the first time, start feeling all those things. And as a, I think I was 32 when I went to treatment up there in Canada, I was like starting over. I was 12 years old dealing with emotional emotional issues. Of 20 years of like zero growth emotionally uh, had to be deconstructed and put back together. It just, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen just because you remove this substance of abuse. It happens with continued effort on a daily basis, uh, understanding that it's progress, not perfection. And what would end up being my downfall that you're not an unflawed human being. <laughs> just because you've found this recovery doesn't mean you, you're not going to stumble and fall. You just you have to you have to ask for the help when it happens. That's that's the substance of the humility that comes from this. And then prison? Well, I got sober. And even though you think Washington State grads aren't smart, addicts are the most smart individuals in the, in the world. Smart or manipulative? <laughs> or both? <laughs> they think they're smart. They're very manipulative. I found this program and I found what it could offer me, but I also found that it could make people, again, think everything's okay. You learn the verbiage. I still was trying to figure out a way to make a living because I had to distance myself from a, something that gave me a lot of heartache, but I, it was the only thing I was associated with, so what do I do? I was approached by a publishing company to write books, and it was money. So I did it, and I wasn't prepared to be in the public eye again yet. So I did it. I got a publicist. We got publicists. We published a book. I went on a book tour. Washington State reached back out and kind of brought me back into the fold. And, you know, we were doing good things. You know, I don't necessarily like to mention this a lot because I think I use it as an excuse. I got diagnosed with a brain tumor. Mm. And uh, that would be significant for a lot of people. I just, I, when I tell my story, I, I try, I, don't necessarily say it because I feel like it's an excuse for me for some reason. Well, that victimization that you talked about earlier, the victim stance. Yeah. I got diagnosed with a brain tumor. I went through the process sober. I went back out on the road pitching this book, doing media, having to talk about all that failure stuff that I hadn't really confronted well enough in treatment and in therapy because I had kind of cut that off now because everything was okay. Sure. And, you know, I was about 18 months sober. And had to go in for radiation because they weren't able to remove all the, the brain tumor. And first opportunity, the doctor saw how weak and sick I was, and he offered me medication. Um, I didn't, I didn't tell him that I had a past. I actually, in that moment, felt like I deserved it. Everybody else who goes through this process, but I'm not like everybody else. I'm a drug addict, and that was December first, two thousand eleven. And he gave them to me that day, and I said, as soon as the radiation's over, and I go back to Montana, I'll quit taking them. That's not the way it works with me. So he gave them to me December 1st, 2011, March 30th, 2012. So just literally four months, I was in a prison cell. It took four months for, the, for my life to evaporate again because of that little white pill. And it's progressive, right? You never start from the bottom again. You, you start from where you last left off. And where I had last left off was stealing from my players and taking 100 milligrams of time. And now... Doctors won't prescribe them to me, so I'm finding ways to get them online. I am literally walking into people's homes 
in my hometown where I was supposed to be a hero and stealing from them, which didn't take long. I'm a terrible criminal. Uh, I was busted. And that moment came again where the fear of being in a jail cell made me know that I was going to having to start feel those feelings again. So I bonded out immediately and was at that place where like dead or high. This time I went a little bit further. I Googled ways to do it. I took a knife to my wrist. Um, I went and tried to park in mom and dad's garage with the truck running. There was always someone in my family there to stop that because my brother showed up and was at my house, so I couldn't follow through with the knife. My parents weren't supposed to be home, but they were. Mm. So there was God working in in my life. And, and there were plenty of times during that process where I was asking for help from whatever my higher power was, and I just didn't realize that ultimately he just, he'd been help, trying to help me all along. But he finally just said, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to send the sheriff's department. Because I went, if I couldn't kill myself, I had to go find the pills. So I went and found some more pills um, at the house. And the police found out about it. And they showed up at my house that night and arrested me, finally, for the last time. And now I can look at it as like, yeah, that was, you know, I kept asking God for help. And he, mm-hmm. he just sent the sheriff's department. Wow. And I would spend 32 months in prison after that point. Best thing my parents ever did was not bail me out. They stopped enabling my behavior. Didn't mean they didn't care for their son. They actually cared for him more because of what that that is. People really don't realize how sick the family is because of the addict in the family. They just they create so much chaos that they infect the whole family with that. And unless they both get help, things will never change. So they put their foot down and, and you know they weren't going to let that happen. They knew that this was what was best for me. And as it turns out, they were right, and, and it was. And it didn't change immediately. I still in my head was, you're feeling these feelings for the first time, so it was probably 80 to 100 days where I was still in that manic mode of like feeling things on a daily basis and trying to finagle a way to get bonded out, to get more pills, to just run it until the wheels fall off. And time passes and time passes. Then you just become, the substance leaves, those chemicals start to evaporate, but the behaviors don't. And so I would sit in my prison cell and do nothing but, you know, be selfish and blame others. And also I loved the fact that I wasn't responsible for anything in there, you know. I was not a burden to myself, to anybody else. I was like, you know, I could just evaporate in here and be fine. You know, a drama-free community from Ryan would be amazing for my hometown, my family, myself. And that's a very selfish way to look at it because that's a lazy way to look at it. You're not doing any hard work. So I did that for a long time. You know, God bless me again with a roommate that, why? You know, I don't know why. I think initially he just knew I had a college education and wanted to, wanted me, I, he wanted me to help him with calculus and stuff because he was trying to get his GED and I was, he was in the wrong room. <laughs> but he felt like this was... He asked uh, if I if I needed a new roommate. I said, "Yeah, it'd be great." I didn't care. I spent my whole time in that room anyway, you know, eating crappy food and watching little flat screen TV at the end of my bed. But he was an Iraqi, uh, Afghan uh, war veteran, and one day he just simply jumped me over my attitude and everything, and saying that I had my head buried in the sand and that I didn't understand the value I had, not only for the 
men in there, but for when I get out, because Ryan, you're going to get out at some point. Even though I kept trying to stay there longer, I kept denying my parole, denying my parole. I probably could have been out of prison in six months. Instead, I stayed there 32. Oh. He took me down to the, he said, we're going to go down to the library and we're going to teach guys who don't know how to read how to read. And I just, I probably pissed and moaned the whole way down there. And, you know, I don't remember. I look back at it now and seeing it as like a watershed moment. But it was it was the progress part of, of my programming, right? Yeah. I started going each day, and then before I knew it, I was volunteering to be the substance abuse counselor's TA. And now I can see that it was the first time I'd actually ever been of service to anybody in my life other than myself. And that was not for anybody's consumption other than because no one's looking at you in prison. That judge flatly tells you that you are of no value. I'm going to give you a number, and I'm going to warehouse you. And it was probably the first time I'd ever been marginalized, too. So that, that's perspective uh, to what other people have gone through. You've said to me a number of times today, Ryan, and even before we started, well, I'm going to see these friends, and then I got this friend, and then I'm going to see these friends. So here's this guy that was behaviorally stuck at 12 for a lot of years, and now in hearing your story and in reading your story and in watching your growth coming out of prison, and now you are spending a life giving and wanting to connect with people. I'm seeing a guy that knows the importance of those around you. Yeah. I did this interview with Jay Glazer because he's seen it from a different perspective of of the impact I've had on other people's lives. And I think my answer to him, he's like, I think his, his question to me was, or his statement to me was, you know, there are a lot of people here, Ryan, because of you. And I, my immediate thing was, I'm, I'm here because of a lot of people. Mm. And I'm fully aware of it. And I found out truly who my friends are through this process and who aren't. I'm very grateful for that and blessed for that. And I, I grasp onto those people and I, I don't let them go. Funny thing is you develop a lot of friendships when you're a personable and likable person. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, boom goes the dynamite type of thing that, that happens there. <laughs> but when you are a personable and likable person, People tend to gravitate towards that. It's a neat feeling. It has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a football player or that I have money or anything. It's because, you know, I'm a decent human being and actually exhibit some sort of empathy, which didn't also exist for me. So you came out of prison 32 months. What day was that? December 3rd, 2014. December 3rd, 2014. And we sit now in 2017. And over those last three years you're most proud of? I'm most proud. I'm clean and sober. I mean, I couldn't go a day, Brock. I mean, I couldn't. That's how insane it is. I could not go 24 hours without altering my mood. And to be five years and three months sober, I mean, it's 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 a miracle because I was incapable. And I found a community and I found those guys that you talked about where you little little fellowships here and there, right? Yep. I have a I like that you put it that way because I developed myself like a board of directors. I have five individuals that I go to for decision-making because I make poor choices. My best thinking takes me to a prison cell. So I go to men who I look up to or I see a life that they have, a a peaceful life, and I ask them how they got it. And I take suggestion because I want what they have. Mm. And I found that. I found a group of five guys. They're my board of directors. I'm the chairman. I make the final decision. But, I mean, if it's – it was four to one. I remember when I asked him if I should move in with my girlfriend, um, the, the the vote came back four to one and yes. And uh, Anna always asked me, what if it would have came back the other way? 
what were you going to do? I, I said, I was moving in with you. Because <laughs> it, it would have been the wrong choice. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I, everybody should have a different perspective when they're 41 years old, of course. Yeah. I think my story is not a lot different from a lot of other people's who have dealt with it. And I also think this is just life. I think life isn't fair. It's it's how you deal with it. And and there are awesome stories out there everywhere. Mine just happened to be very public at times. What does faith mean to Ryan Leaf today? What's it going to mean in the future moving forward? Faith is, you remember those ideals I said a little bit earlier about what I thought was success was money, power, and prestige. So that's that's what I thought success was. Like my three pillars and ideals right now are one, spirituality, two, accountability, three, community. Those are those are the three that laid the foundation. And spirituality for me is not it's not religious based for me. I don't I'm open minded to everybody's way of thinking. I just know there's something bigger than me out there and that's guiding me. I don't know what it is. Some days it's in a reading I, I read. Some days it's in something my sponsor says. Sometimes it's just in nature. Being those thirty two months in prison I went out twice. I went outside twice. That's it. By choice. I'll spend afternoons on a golf course now where it is it's not about competition it's about communing with mother nature and that's a huge part of uh, of me meditatively and spiritually so that that's the foundation builder for me the accountability part of course comes into like you know i'm here because of what i did nobody else yep. and then the community part is my drug use isolated me in a way where i would just disappear off the face of the earth i couldn't look you in the eye community I found a community of where I work, of where I fellowship for programming. I don't see shame in standing in NFL circles anymore, even mm-hmm. if I'm standing next to a man who's won five Super Bowls. Mm-hmm. I don't feel less than in that room anymore. I feel like we accomplished something and we're a brotherhood. And that's changed completely. Mm-hmm. I don't push away the idea of, of football I think it brings a ton of us together when we can actually have honest and open conversations then. So that all stems from community. And uh, the relationships you build because of that continue to to lift and, and, and make my life better. And lastly, here is a husband and a dad-to-be moving forward. Well, it's uh, I'm scared to death. I'm really pr- – I just – you know, when she told me we were pregnant, I – she said it was the biggest smile she'd ever seen on my face. So she knew that because she was nervous about telling me even too. And just the idea, you know, I'm so pleased that I'm in the state of mind at 41 bringing a child into this world. Because I remember for a long time I thought I, I can never bring a child into this world because I don't want to give it my last name because of how much shame I had around it. And the idea that three months from now I'm going to have something in my life that's going to bond me with this woman who I found who's, you know, become this partner who also didn't know that other version of myself, which is kind of neat, especially when my brother asks her a question like, what was it that made you finally fall for Ryan? And, mm. she's, and she said, well, he's the, he's the most honest guy I've ever met. Mm. And my brother just, just starts laughing. You know, it's just <laughs> it's hilarious to, yes. to think that because he's lived 38 years with me going, yeah, that's not where I would have gone with that. <laughs> But it's amazing that she, that you yeah. make these, this, this Transformation, change. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that question you asked about being proud, that made the other proudest thing I am, that people look at me and trust me again. Mm. You know? Mm. I was a liar and a cheat and just without character for so long that 
what's sad about it is that I was okay with it. You know, this was just, you develop the idea that's just who I am. They say a great story is one that has a beginning and an end and, and one heck of an arc in between. And, and Ryan Leafs, and I think this podcast illustrates so much of that. As you heard Ryan say, who he is today is very different than who he was years ago. That veneer is broken. I'm going to look forward to keep watching him day by day and see exactly where this journey in his faith will continue to grow. Can't thank you enough for listening to Above and Beyond. Only four more episodes are left in this season. And likewise, I can't wait to watch all those unfold.